Al-Jazeera podcast. A bird flu outbreak in many countries. Global concern is growing. So, how serious is it? And could it become a new pandemic? I'm Mohammed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. So joining us in Indiana is Marcus Rust, the chief executive officer of Roseacre Farms. In Rotterdam is Marion Koopmans, head of the Viroscience Department at Erasmus Medical Center. And in Surrey, England, is Munir Iqbal, who heads the Avian Influenza Group at the Peerbright Institute, which focuses on infectious diseases of farm animals. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Marcus, let me start with you today. Um, Roseacre Farms is the second largest egg producer in the United States. How hard have your farms been hit, and, and how are you all coping so far? We, we have lost one farm of our own companies, and then we have another partnership where we own, it's a joint venture, we have 50%. We've lost a farm there twice, and the farm, but all three, each of the three times, we lost over a million birds. And, and Marcus, um, you know, you mentioned that your farms have been hit really badly. Um, one of your farms, as I understand it, got hit twice. Um, how many hens have you lost as a result? And, and what is the biggest risk thus far to your farms? At that farm in Colorado, we lost uh, 1.8 million the first time back in May or June. And then we lost in December 1.2 million. And the farm wasn't totally back full again. And uh, the state of Colorado in the U.S. has probably lost 90% of its chickens. Marion, uh, how, how concerned should we be at this point about all this? Well, I think it's quite unprecedented what we're witnessing, and particularly the shift in the global distribution of this particular uh, strain of uh, H5 avian uh, influenza. So it has shifted from a somewhat localized problem with occasional uh, spread internationally, but now this virus has has dispersed globally in, in the wild bird population. And from there, you can continue to see the examples that were mentioned by the previous uh, uh, speaker, uh, which, which is, of course, tragic for the poultry industry, uh, but also the risk that we are looking at from the human health perspective is what if there is further spread into mammals. And we've seen quite a few examples of that as well. And I think that's also worrisome. So the sheer opportunity for exposure to this virus is a problem both for the poultry industry and for the, the much lower risk, but it is present uh, for, for um, spillover into people. And, and Marion, I, I want to pick up on a point you're making there. Um, you know, you're talking about this avian influenza that's gone far beyond birds uh, at this point. Um, it's recent spread among members of separate species. It, it has a lot of experts concerned about the way the virus is changing. How much do we know about how it is mutating at this point? And also, uh, you, you talked about it being a low risk at this point for humans, but how much of a risk is there for transmission to humans at this point? We know that this, this virus descends from a line of H5 viruses that we have been seeing and tracking since 1996, when they were first detected in uh, China. Uh, and since over the, the years, so that's already uh, quite some time, uh, we have seen occasional human infections, uh, 950 so far, and the worry is 
so that's not a whole lot, uh, you know, if realistically, but those infections have been quite severe and more than half of the people that had it uh, succumbed to the infection, died from the infection. So that's a worry. So it's a rare situation, um, but, but uh, the question is, could this change? And, and could this change because the viruses change? Now, for that to happen, we are looking at spillovers into mammals. And we've seen these uh, in different carnivores, where you can still say, well, that is part of what you could expect now, because these animals, they, they may eat uh, dead or dying birds. The recent example was a big outbreak on a mink farm in Spain, where there, it is really clear that there also has been transmission between mink, so from one animal to the next. And that's the kind of situation uh, where we start to worry about new changes of the virus uh, that make it better fit for multiplying into mammals, which uh, we humans also are. Mm. Uh, there is no mention of that. There, so there is um, a few mutations that have been uh, found in different carnivores and including in the mink. Uh, not one of the ones that we, uh, in, in from past research, know are really necessary for the human adaptation. But that's, of course, what we have to be really on the lookout for. Mm. Uh, Munir, you and your team, as I understand it, are working on a vaccine for poultry for all the various strains of, of avian flu. How is that process going thus far? There are two ways to make these vaccines, or three ways. So the one way is... Um, these poultry vaccines require, like human vaccine, they should be antigenically matched to the circulating field viruses. So currently, because in uh, Europe, the vaccines are not being made, these are uh, uh, being used, and therefore, there is no such hurry to antigenically match it. But in our laboratory, we show that if you have a antigenically matched vaccines, they will protect the poultry by the conventional vaccine, which you kill the virus and then mix with that joint like a, like a conventional uh, killed virus vaccines. So there is another uh, two ways. One is the protein-based vaccine we are developing, which uh, provide a much higher efficacy but that is not um, in the market or not registration. And then the other vaccine, which are registered one called vector vaccine, they use herpes virus of Turkey uh, as a vector, which is being used to protect poultry from Marix disease. So by genetically inserting the genes of this virus, mm. the new vaccine can be, can be made as well if required. So that can help to the poultry, and these are for the poultry vaccine. And the WHO also looking for a candidate pandemic vaccines for if in case that's required for humans. So they, they are testing the similar way that this should be, the mm. seed should be available. Yeah, Munir, which, if, which if I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if I could just ask, like, where are you in the process? I mean, how long do you think it might be until these vaccines that you are describing would be available and in use? 
So the, the, the killed one can be made available anytime uh, these company can make within a, within, a, within a month if they require it. So this is a very simple process and these companies are already making for the flu vaccine. For example, the, there is another virus called uh, H9N2. Many companies around the world they are making and using for the poultry against avian influenza. So the only thing they need to change is the seed virus. This mm. is a high pathogen virus and this cannot be handled on those um, factories because this is a risk to human as well and high, high pathogen. So that need high containment, but there are a methods which make this virus to a, a low virulent virus, we call it, mm. which can be handled at these uh, these factories, so that usually take um, really fast nowadays. Mm. It's called a genetic called reverse genetic viruses. China is making the um, these vaccines um, using this technology and um, giving to the poultry um, last at least fifteen years uh, against H five. So mm. that technology is readily available. Um, but the the other technology, of course, um, they need a little bit more time mm. uh, to integrate the current H5 and one virus antigen to to those technologies. Uh, Marcus, um, how how much of a threat does all does all of this pose to the food supply in the U.S. Uh, to the food supply in the rest of the world, and and also if you could tell our viewers about. You know some of the knock-on effect of all this, like like how is it impacting egg prices, for example? <clears throat> well, here in the U.S., the uh, when we lost about fifteen percent of our birds, approximately, the price of eggs during the holiday peak time periods did double, triple, almost. But that was only for a six-week period of holiday demand. Now that the holidays are over, the prices have come down, you know, back to, you know, a more reasonable level for consumers. Uh, and, you know, what we look at long term is, you know, the world trade restrictions on vaccine. If we vaccinate, the broiler companies can't sell the chicken meat to China, Mexico, and several other countries in the world. And, you know, the, the, there's lots of argument in the scientific community about whether you vaccinate to die or vaccinate to live. And, you know, in the U.S., they want to adopt the vaccinate to die, where even if we vaccinate, we'll still have to kill our birds if our birds get it. Marcus, and also... to me, that's kind of a waste, but... If I could also just ask you, what kind of precautionary measures... Are, are you being asked to take and, and are you taking on the farms to prevent transmission? What, what are the steps that you have to take? We, we are, a lot of our facilities are what we call shower in, shower out for our people that work with the poultry. You know, we require them to, you know, change their clothes and take a shower before coming in. And, you know, we, we don't allow any outside people to come to our farms now. Um, you know, you just have to maintain biosecurity. And, and and the tough part for any poultry producer in the world today, the minute they step outside the door of their hen house 
and look into the wild, they have to accept the fact that up to 20% of the species of birds in the world now are carrying AI. And that's a problem. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're sitting there trying to say we, we're not going to catch it when it's endemic around the world. Mary, and I saw you nodding a bit to uh, what Marcus was saying there. It looked like you wanted to jump in, so go ahead. Yeah, so that's exactly, I think that's the big challenge, uh, both for the poultry side and for the human health side. In the uh, So China has been successfully vaccinating down the uh, circulation, uh, both for H5 and H7 uh, avian influenza viruses, but there, the most of the circulation was driven by uh, circulation in the poultry industry. But now we have this virus essentially in the wild, which you cannot vaccinate. Uh, so that problem is not uh, dealt with. What you can address is spillover from wild birds into, let's say, uh, pigs, mink, uh, humans. Um, so that's a very different challenge than from what we've been seeing before in uh, in Asia. And the discussion on uh, whether or not to vaccinate poultry is also ongoing in, in Europe with the same uh, trade uh, uh, restrictions. There is now movement because also of the, the animal welfare side that uh, if you have an occasional introduction, occasional culling of a farm, that's one thing, but if that becomes uh, weekly routine, that's of course uh, not uh, uh, sustainable for, for, for very different reasons that were just explained. One issue that is a discussion is, uh, is this question about, could you uh, have, uh, so if you vaccinate poultry, could you have the situation where the virus is circulating, but you don't see it because the birds no longer get sick. That would be a potentially risk increasing for the humans working with those animals. And that's where this question about how good and how good is the match between a vaccine and the virus that you're trying to protect from, how good is that? And that's, that's why those questions are really important and the studies are really important. Mm. Uh, Munir, is, is, um, is the version of avian flu that's causing the most problems now, is that H5N1? And, and how many subtypes are there? So, so there are several subtypes of H5. Um, for example, in China, the more prominent was H5N6. And in Middle East, H5N8. And this, then this virus gain some genes from H5N8 and other wild bird uh, avian influenza viruses which are circulating in wild bird and become, this is the H5N1, which is the fittest virus uh, we, we are seeing um, in a different respect in terms of its transmission within the wild birds and from wild bird to poultry and genetically when we are analyzing the, uh, this, uh, comparing these viruses with the previous one, we are seeing a signature that this virus is more fit uh, in terms of infection, in terms of its stability um, in the environment. So this virus uh, gain some genes here and there and become a fittest virus so far. 
which we are comparing with other in terms of an infection in wild world or spread in wild world or transmission from wild world to poultry. Uh, Marcus, um, experts have been warning that farmers are going to have to treat the disease as a serious risk all year round instead of just focusing on prevention efforts during migration seasons for wild birds. Um, are farmers, particularly farmers in the U.S., are they, are they prepared to do this? Is this something that they can do? And, and how difficult would that be? It, it's something we're having to learn to live with. And, you know, it, it's, you know, long term, we may have to go to what, you know, to, you know, filtered air hen houses. But, you know, that makes the cost of producing eggs much higher. And, you know, it would disallow poultry being outside you know, because we'd have to have everything contained inside the building and use filtered air, and that takes a lot more energy. You know, it would increase the amount of electricity used on a poultry farm by, you know, 5x probably, you know, five times. So obviously the costs involved for farmers would would be a lot higher, right? I mean, is that correct? It, It would raise the capital cost, you know, 20 or $30 a chicken and, and raise the operational cost 10 or 15 cents a dozen. Mm. You know, it's, it, it sounds like 10 or 15 cents is cheap, but, you know, when you take the amount of eggs that are produced around the world, that comes back and, you know, that's an average consumer around the world may buy 15 dozen, 20 dozen eggs a year. So, you know, if you raise the price to all consumers in the world, if there's, seven billion of us or however many there is, you know, if you raise it a dollar, that's seven billion dollars, we just raise food costs. Marion, I, I want to talk uh, again with you for a minute about um, this potential for transmissibility between the birds and, and humans. Um, how difficult is it for avian flu to travel directly from birds to humans. Um, from, from the reading that I've done, and I, I'm certainly no expert, uh, it seems as though there needs to be some type of vessel in order for this to happen. What, what does that mean, and what is the process like? Well, what we now see so far, so this is really uh, not a virus that is transmissible between humans. That's the big step that we are looking out for. So we do see occasional infections of humans, but that's where it stops. And those have been people that all have had very direct, intense contact with with birds. So if you have an infected uh, farm or an infected bird, uh, you can expect that to to, uh, have virus in the the respiratory tract, but also um, in the stool. Uh, And if you have a big flock uh, that is infected, there may be virus in the dust. So there's plenty of ways that people can get exposed. The step that is not happening for this virus, and let's uh, hope it'll stay that way, is that somehow this virus can be transmitted between people. Uh, We know from past uh, research that that requires some changes. So currently the viruses really are optimal for infection of birds that is uh, even the first step of that process is different in birds than in people so we need uh, changes in the virus before that happens as easily in people Uh, now those changes are not a whole lot 
there's ways uh, in which they, those can be introduced. We have learned all from COVID that viruses that get a lot of room for spread can mutate. Uh, so the more room for, for that there is, there, there is the, the risk of selection of viruses that have some mutations that make them uh, more fit for spreading between people. Uh, there's one other step that, that is, uh, well, important to think about from past uh, pandemics with influenza is that we have what is called mixing vessels and that's the, the pig um, uh, because we know that pigs uh, can be infected both by avian influenza viruses and their own influenza viruses and human influenza viruses. So if uh, this virus would make it into pigs, that would be really a big problem. Uh, and that's why, uh, so I'm not so worried for the human health risk about the, the, the farm industry in, for instance, the US, because that is a highly biosecure and regulated uh, sector. Uh, but we also have uh, poultry and, and other animal farms in other parts of the world where there's, there's much more open housing, less biosecure, and mm. where you can get those introductions. And that's where I think the focus needs to be uh, really increased surveillance in pigs, in mink, uh, just to make sure that not something is cooking that, that, uh, that may really uh, lead to problems. Marion, you, you mentioned COVID um, uh, and the reaction uh, to that. Um, are there lessons that we've learned from the COVID-19 pandemic uh, that could prepare us all better to deal with another potential pandemic? Um, and, and also, are we more worried at this stage about avian flu um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic? I mean, it, it, is there any sense of this being more alarmist than it needs to be? So this is, I think it's an excellent question, but this is the tough one. Uh, we have so far really been... Uh, responding to uh, emerging diseases. We've seen that again with COVID. Um, that, uh, so the first signal was people getting sick and then uh, the whole world needed to respond and we've seen what happened and that it's really difficult if you have a virus that's already very transmissible, it's very difficult to really contain that. Now, the big question is, can we be ahead of that curve? And that means asking the question, what are the threats out there that, uh, that we know of and what can we do to, to prevent this from happening? So that's where we're at with avian influenza, this example. Um, so is it an immediate threat? I don't think so, but I don't know. It could be, uh, but it is exactly this step that I think we need to learn how do what does this mean uh, how uh, uh, do we step up our uh, uh, well biosecurity our uh, check our protocols for the situation that this would become transmissible to humans are we ready for that i think that's the question that we all should ask uh, because we have learned that if we don't prepare uh, and we wait until uh, an outbreak like this starts, then we certainly have a very hard time responding to it. 
Uh, Munir, we only have about a minute and a half left, so just very briefly, um, avian flu has become endemic for the first time in some wild birds that transmit the virus to poultry. So how much worse does that make the situation? This is very worse in terms of the poultry, as you can see that uh, in UK, uh, every virtually every day we are uh, seeing uh, at least one outbreak. And previously only once, or you can see um, from 2008 to 2014, we may have only one or two, and later on in one year, we may have a five or six. So it is really, really worse because of this virus has been now become endemic in wild bird and not only wild bird, which are migratory, but it is in the resident wild bird, which uh, do not migrate, but remain within the boundaries. And that's, uh, that means the virus is persisting in the environment. And as long as the virus is persisting in the environment, then certainly, to risk to the poultry uh, is a huge. All right, well, we have run out of time, so we're gonna have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Marcus Rust, Marion Koopmans, and Munir Iqbal. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, Abdurrahman Jelik, Abla Kla, Mohamed Salman, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison. The program was edited by Andre Ustuizin, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next episode. Thank you.